We're back with the tech policy grind. I'm Rima Musa, and I'm a fellow with the Internet Law and Policy Foundry, the organization where the next generation of tech law and policy professionals convene to write, think, and talk about the web, technology, and disruptive innovation. This is the Tech Policy Grind, the Foundry's podcast where we chat about what's going on in the world of tech policy. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Tech Policy Grind. Last week, we talked about LGBT tech's work in connecting the LGBTQ community to the internet and technology for the sake of digital equity. Well, for better or worse, most of the U.S. is also connected through cars, which play an increasingly important role in internet policy, and that's what we're diving into this week. In this episode, Foundry Fellow and car-centric SoCal native Evan Anzer joins us from the very car-negative and privacy-sensitive Netherlands to talk with Adani Washington, Policy Counsel at the Future of Privacy Forum, and Andrea Amico, the founder of a technology company called Privacy for Cars. They get into Andrea's new Vehicle Privacy Report, which you can find on vehicleprivacyreport.com, the very first interactive resource educating consumers and dealerships about the data collected by specific makes and models, the latest edition of Mozilla's Privacy Not Included, the California Privacy Protection Agency, or CPPA's latest enforcement suite, and the Future of Privacy Forum's infographics on vehicle data. By the end of this episode, you'll have all the info you need to get up to speed into the future of vehicles. Enjoy! Vehicle privacy seems to be everywhere these days. A few months ago, I released a report on car data and how it falls into the hands of the government, often without a warrant or any good cause. More recently, the California Privacy Protection Agency, or CPPA, that acronym always gives me trouble, announced an enforcement sweep against automobile companies. Shortly after that, Mozilla, from Firefox, released a report showing that cars have just about the worst consumer privacy practices of any product its reviewers have ever seen. The contents of that report can be found in the latest edition of Privacy Not Included, a consumer advocacy report published by the Mozilla Foundation. But what once seemed to be something that no one was talking about has come to the forefront of privacy law and policy. Today, we're going to talk about it all. Adani, our listeners on the show are generally newer to the privacy and policy profession. Could you tell me a little bit about your work and how it interacts with vehicle privacy? Adani Washington, um, Policy Council, Future of Privacy Forum. I focus on mobility, location, and data. The Future of Privacy Forum as a whole is a global nonprofit organization based in Washington, D.C., and we bring together academics, civil society, government officials, and industry to evaluate the societal, policy, and legal implications of data uses, identify the risks, and develop appropriate protections. For my specific work, um, I look at mobility and location as it relates to vehicles, of course, but also micromobility um, and other broad issues surrounding location data. So we look at vehicles and how privacy and data is implicated uh, when the individuals purchase connected vehicles, uh, what that looks like as, um, as a consumer, but then also we look at 
how companies can ensure they are um, in compliance with the various privacy laws that exist um, and ensuring that they are being transparent and clear when talking about um, individuals' data and and ensuring that they are using privacy protective measures uh, surrounding that vehicle data. I'm a big fan of FPF, so I'm excited to talk to you today. Andrea, how about you? Uh, sure, Andrea Mico. I'm the founder and CEO of Privacy for Cars. We are the first and oddly still the only company, I believe, that tries to create pragmatic technology-based solutions to privacy in vehicles. Um, we are amazed by the fact that uh, uh, the topic has finally reached a broad appeal with uh, the population. Um, for many, many years, I've been told that uh, either cars were not a problem for privacy or that consumers either way didn't care. I think uh, since uh, last May, when we launched vehicle privacy reports, it's been obvious to us that none of those statements are true. Um, and it is obvious to us that uh, people noticed anything from the media to regulators and companies. And my hope is that we can keep helping all of those making inroads and create better privacy for consumers. And you and I have collaborated a bit in the past, and it's always great to talk to you. I'm excited to have you here today. It's been a pleasure, and uh, I still think that your report is one of the best reports ever come out, and definitely you have the angle on government absolutely down. So it's a pleasure to be with you today. Oh, thank you so much. You were a big help with that report. Some people might be surprised to learn how much data is on their cars. What sort of information do cars collect? Yeah, first of all, this is an issue that goes back 20 years. This is not new. The, it's the media cycle is new, but the problem is not new. Uh, people don't realize that uh, cars have technology that captures significant personal information from consumers for about 20 years. That's how long telematics have been around. That's how long Bluetooth has been around in cars. Navigation has just been even longer than that. Um, but to bring us to today and cars made in the last decade or two, and especially in the last few years, if you think about it, there's really two sources of data. Uh, that go into cars that are very personal to, to consumers. Uh, one is sensors in cars. Um, I'm sure that you've been shopping for a car recently. It doesn't look uh, very much like cars that were in commerce 10 years ago and probably even five years ago. There's just been an incredible amount of new technology put in cars, many of it for excellent reasons like safety, um, but uh, also companies have figured out that data that was originally collected for safety purposes has potential commercial value. And so they've been a bit on a, on a spree on trying to figure out how many more data points can they possibly collect when we drive over occupants in vehicles. The second source is actually our personal devices. Um, what people often don't realize is that as soon as you connect your, your phone over Bluetooth or over USB because you want to use Apple CarPlay or Android Auto, all of those things that you think are, are not happening are actually happening. Uh, I hear often people telling me, well, I use Apple CarPlay, so it's just mirroring what's on my screen on my phone. So, of course, there's no data from my phone. Uh, wrong. As soon as you connect to your car, cars are designed to download a lot of data from your personal devices, and the data is typically stored unencrypted on, let's call it improperly, like a hard drive. It's really not how technology works, but... I think it helps the audience understand how this works. And then, of course, this data is left behind on a regular basis. Um, there's no authentication, which means anybody who has the keys to the car has access to this trove of unencrypted data. 
And so these causes a number of problems. That's really how we started our journey at Privacy for Caution. How do we delete data from these, quote unquote, local hard drives of cars as they are resold? What are companies doing with this data? Is it for driver safety? Is it for navigation? What are they using it for? My, my understanding is that the, main, the origin of this was actually pretty well-intentioned, right? So companies started to realize that if they had a little bit more data, they would be able to design safer vehicles. That is, for instance, why essentially all newer cars and anything that has airbags on has one special computer. It's called the Electronic Data Recorder. And essentially, it's a very specialized recorder that records a bunch of technical data a few seconds before and after impact. And companies realize if they have access to that, they will be able to reconstruct accidents and make safer vehicles and so on and so forth. The problem is that as you know, that's how the journey started, but then it started to take a couple of you know turns that are not unforeseen if you look at tech in general. One is that um, certain type of actors realize that they could use this data for other purposes. So for instance, insurance companies now tap into that data that was originally created for designing safer vehicles to um, settle claims. Uh, and uh, in fact, uh, in a couple of cases, there's been some uh, some very ugly issues coming out of it to the point that the government decided to regulate that specific one computer. But then also auto companies, and I'm not talking just about manufacturing, I'm literally talking about hundreds of companies that we keep track of, um, were very interested in the amount of data the cars were collecting. And so, uh, what happens is that nowadays you are consenting to something that is typically framed as it's important for your safety or it's necessary for the operation of your vehicle, but it's not. Let me give you a real example, right? So there's a number of companies out there that say, hey, um, subscribe to the service or consent to this uh, geolocation news because if you have an accident, wouldn't you want emergency service to show up at the scene of the accident? And you would say, well, yes. And of course, it makes sense that they would have to have your GPS position because otherwise, where do you send an ambulance? I mean, who wouldn't want that, right? I, I want that for my wife and my kids. And I think that most Americans would, uh, would relate to that. The problem is the very same consent is now used for everything else. I consented to the ambulance or emergency service to have access to my location in case of an accident, but the same consent is now used to store what is typically somewhere around 10 years of precise geolocation of people and being sold and shared to all sorts of companies. I'm using sold and shared as technical terms here in a number of privacy laws. I did want to push on, push back just a little on something that Andrea said as it relates to consent mechanisms. You know, I challenge the, the concept that you know, OEMs and original equipment manufacturers, manufacturers of vehicles, um, that those companies are not thinking, uh, you know, heavily around consent. Um, I'd actually challenge that with they are consistently and constantly thinking about consent, right? The, the difficulty for them is that oftentimes they are trying to comply with a number of different privacy um, laws and regulations and legislations across a number of states. Um, and so it can, it can be a bit tricky in terms of how are we ensuring compliance with the various privacy schemes that currently exist in the country um, since there is not one uh, 
standard federal level um, privacy and, and data protection law. And so trying to manage the consent as it looks different um, in different locations is one of the things. So I'd say um, one thing to note is that oftentimes um, we're seeing vehicle, in addition to Andrea's amazing tool that does make it more clear for consumers and is providing ease of understanding this at the at the level of shopping for the vehicle, um, vehicle manufacturers have started to uh, take use of the infotainment systems in vehicles and provide some of those quick consents that give them clear um, understanding of what's happening. How do people go about finding what information their cars are collecting or what's stored on their car? In terms of the resources that FPF uh, makes available related to uh, vehicle data, uh, we have a wonderful infographic uh, that was updated um, and, excuse me, that was published in 2017 called Data in the Connected Car. Um, it is a very clear and, and personally one of my favorite ways. Um, I like to be able to visualize, right, this conversation about what kind of data points um, we've kind of laid out the different places that data can come from and the different inputs in the vehicle both uh, sensor-wise, but also um, user-wise. And I think the infographic that we have highlights um, how the data goes into different aspects, um, what it actually looks like in a vehicle interface. Um, and it's something that is fairly easily digestible for kind of everyone across the board, be it manufacturers, be it consumers. Um, the additional thing that we've done is worked with the National Automobile Automobile Dealers Association, NADA, to create a pamphlet for dealers to offer to consumers that gives individuals a primer on vehicle data and privacy. So imagine um, Andrea's wonderful tool uh, that people can use when they're shopping for cars online, as we see that that is something um, a lot of people are doing that was born and bred out of COVID and just a move towards ease of, in, of vehicle shopping, right? Um, the pamphlet that FPF created with NADA uh, is something that actually sits in the dealership. So I think at that dealer level, being able to offer consumers a clear tool or a clear um, you know, resource that allows them to understand the data and the privacy implications for their particular vehicle or things that they can then you know, look into as it relates to their vehicle is, is what FPF can offer. Um, and what uh, Privacy for Cars offers as well. Yeah, so we we realized that um, the transparency was absolutely broken. Um, just some, some important facts, right? So we do a lot of, of tests, for instance, at dealerships, and we realized that less than 5% of salespeople at dealerships actually knew and told the consumers when they were asked that, yes, this car can collect personal information. Yes, the companies um, that make this car and other companies have the right to collect, share, and sell this data. Less than one in 20. And in fact, two-thirds were adamant about telling consumers that this would never happen. It would be illegal. Companies would never do that. It would be against their interest. And unfortunately, that's literally what's happening every day, right? And so... I believe that without transparency is kind of the bedrock of privacy, right? If you start in a nebulous and foggy place, it's very hard to decide in which direction should be going and making rational choices. And so to lift this fog, that's why we created something called Vehicle Privacy Report. It's literally a free website. It's vehiclepravacyreport.com. And anybody can go there and punch in the VIN of their car and we'll tell them basic facts about that vehicle. What kind of technologies in it? 
What does the manufacturer says about what kind of data collect? Does it collect biometrics? Does it collect geolocation? Uh, what kind of use do they make with, with uh, user profiles? Who do they share it with? Um, just internal with the company or third parties, insurance companies, government, data brokers, etc. So we're trying to make that super, super simple for consumers to understand what uh, is going on. What should we know about the new CPPPA, CPPA enforcement sweep against uh, vehicle companies? It's a sort of a C's and P's. I mean, everything. <laughs> exactly. Um, so in this instance, the agency, the California Privacy Protection Agency. Um, so FBF does track a bit of California related happenings. Um, obviously, this one was uh, very notable, not only um, for its specificity to vehicles, um, but it is the first announcement of its kind out of C- CPPA to conduct an industry wide inquiry. Um, the focus, of course, being on cars uh, kind of goes to show the continued trend in California and elsewhere to look at vehicles and understand the privacy and data that exist in the vehicle ecosystem. The inquiries were sent directly to the manufacturers of the vehicles. And while we don't know precisely what the inquiries ask or contain, um, you know, we at FPF can, can hypothesize and speaking with others in the space, hypothesize that the agency is, is likely looking to understand privacy practices and privacy policy language, not only for compliance with California laws, um, but probably a bit more generally uh, to get an understanding about what vehicle and privacy actually means from the OEM side, right? So understanding, um, you know, potentially what the data flows look like or potentially, you know, wondering how they, how they are handling data requests um, that come from, you know, California residents or otherwise. Um, I think this is, as I mentioned, it's not the first instance that California has done something. There's currently um, legislation pending before the governor um, that relates to uh, in in vehicle cameras in the state of California. So I think California has a a bit of a leaning to start to investigate vehicles. So it'll be interesting to see how this kind of plays out um, at the CPPA and, and, you know, what becomes public from those inquiries and, and what the next step is there. First of all, I think we're going to have to wait a little bit, right? These things typically take a little bit of time. Uh, My understanding, this is not limited to manufacturers, but it's broader than that. But I I really have no insight as to who has been receiving requests and the content of those requests. What I can tell you, because there was an interesting interview on TV of one of the enforcers of CPPA, um, Mr. Macro, I believe his name is, where he says that essentially they're going to be using the three rights that was mentioned before, right? Transparency, right to delete, and right to opt out as kind of their checklist for, tell me again how you're complying with those. And um, again, I don't know what they will find out, but I, I can tell you that from our perspective, because we interact with a lot of companies, uh, many of them may have underestimated the challenges that come to dealing with the privacy of the data that the vehicles are collecting, sharing, and selling. And um, and, and I think that there's going to be a lot of work that needs to be done by companies to to get closure to what I think is the, the letter and definitely the spirit of, of the law in California, but also in other places. Um, 
I am personally surprised that after the Mozilla uh, report came out, which I know we haven't really talked much about, but Mozilla did an incredible review of, I think, 25 different car brands. Uh, they measured them against their minimum baseline. None of them met the minimum baseline. What I was surprised to see is that we really haven't seen a lot of editing of privacy policies or terms from manufacturers specifically and some major service providers in the auto industry, um, which I thought would have happened. But uh, um, I don't know what to, to read into that. I don't know if it's uh, a sign that companies are working on it, but they haven't issued them yet, or whether they think that this is just going to blow or nobody's going to care. I think if, that's the, if the latter is what they're thinking, I, I, I just don't know how to reconcile that with an active investigation from CPPA, as you mentioned. Do either of you have thoughts about Mozilla's latest privacy is not included report? Sure, I'm happy to, to weigh in. Um, the Mozilla team, so their, their advocacy arm, Privacy Not Included, um, did a great job at emphasizing that the report was meant to capture what a consumer would be able to find. I think that's really important, right, as we're talking about this kind of renewed awareness around um, vehicle privacy and, you know, think of it, you know, you hear about vehicle privacy in the news and you're like, oh man, what does this mean for my car, right? And so what is a consumer actually able to find. I think what's missing from the report um, is that privacy policies do often contain nuance to ensure coverage for a number of circumstances. Uh, when privacy is considered, companies often have to consider various privacy laws and regulations in different states or countries. Um, and I think the unique aspect about vehicles is they are crossing state lines on a regular basis, right? Some people, I, um, I'm in D.C., and I know people who drive into D.C. from Virginia or from Maryland and back every single day. Um, and this can create lengthy and difficult to understand privacy policies, which I, you know, I think is kind of at the heart of what Mozilla wanted to highlight. And I think to Andrea's point about seeing some updates to privacy policies, we might have seen some of those updates uh, be a bit more internal. I know I've, um, over the last couple of years, I've started to get tons of privacy policy updates um, every year. I did receive one for my vehicle. Um, just, you know, minor kinds of updates. I think what will come out of both the Mozilla report and out of um, the California inquiry will be some of the changing and overhauling of privacy policies. But I can't say for certain what that's going to look like at each car level. Um, I think it's going to depend not only on the make and model of vehicles. There are some, right, um, some top of the line vehicle models for, you know, the most recent years that have a, an array of all these uh, technological features and advancements that can allow for a number of different things versus cars that are a few years older might have different um, ones. So I think the report, uh, you know, really highlights what can be found um, as a consumer and really gives um, companies the, the opportunity to ensure that policies are accurate and durable while considering different ways to communicate regarding their internal practices in order to maintain trust and, you know, foster an informed public. Because I think that's kind of what Mozilla's report uh, highlighted was that, you know, what I can find as an individual might not fully be the whole picture or might not fully actually inform what is occurring and what is happening. If you don't mind, I'll add my two cents to this. So first of all, Jen, Jen and Misha um, at uh, uh, Obviously not included, 
I mean, it's just amazing that a team of two people essentially does all the lift. I, I don't know if you've seen how many IOTs they've rated over the years. It's just amazing the amount of work that they that they produce. That's incredible. I didn't realize their team was so small for those reports. I mean, the core team that reads the privacy policies, the two of them, and 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 as a consequence, right? And that's what they do all day long. They read privacy policies, which, <laughs> you know, kind of an interesting job description, right? So, you know, I think most of us would run as far away from that as we possibly could in our life. And, you know, unfortunately, I'm stuck into having to do that kind of stuff too. But, you know, I get it. Uh, but but um, I think what they wanted to point out was that the level of length, complexity, and unusual way of expressing content makes makes automotive stands apart from most IOTs. I think everybody knows the joke of the S and the P in IOT stands for security and privacy. I think they're saying, you know, cars take it to a completely different level. What I can tell you from our exercise of reading privacy policies, because that's what we had to do for several years to finally get to, you know, building what this vehicle privacy um, report today, is that the average privacy policy and terms is spread over multiple documents. It takes an average of two and a half hours, as long as six hours for a car. That's just the OEM, right? I'm not even talking about third-party services. And the average complexity is that you need to have some college education. And some of them require PhD-level education to be understood. And I think that that's what is fundamentally in uh, an incredible opportunity for fixing it for consumers. Again, I fundamentally believe that privacy is not something ugly. Privacy is something that potentially is beautiful. And in fact, you know, for all the shortcomings of Apple, and but they spend $10 billion a year telling consumers buy an iPhone because of privacy. And they do a lot of things that other companies don't do. And they've essentially turned it into a value proposition for consumers to say, look, you have many choices. You care about privacy. We should be your top consideration product. And I don't know why, in a moment in which all manufacturers are saying that what they want to do is to move from making hardware into being software platforms, which, by the way, is the is the, the, the journey that Apple probably most successfully has conducted more than any other company in the world. Why nobody's copying the blueprint of Apple? Because what we receive every day from consumers that go and log in on vehicle privacy report and tell us what they think is consistently, I had no idea my car did this, nobody told me, and I don't like it. And how amazing it would be if somebody came out and said, look, let all the other manufacturers and service companies or whatever else collect data and sell it and share it. That's not what we do. At company X, we understand there's a large segment of the population that is looking for privacy in vehicles. We will deliver to you the same safety features that everybody has, but we're going to use that data exclusively for safety. You want a private car? We are the choice. And I think if company did that, they would realize a couple of things. One is that it's a lot easier to manage to build a product that does that. You don't need massive department of former Googlers and Facebook employees that are trying to figure out how to suck up data out of consumers and monetize it with hundreds of partnerships. You don't need those departments anymore. 
The second thing that it does is that actually you have simplified your product. You have a unique value proposition. If you think about it, that's kind of what Volvo did a generation ago, right? Cars had some serious safety issues, and most of them were trying to improve safety marginally. And Volvo said, you know what? We're going to be the company that heralds safety in vehicles. We're going to be the first to make mandatory seatbelts, the first to install a bunch of airbags. We're going to be innovating how many airbags and how we put them in cars and so on and so forth. We want to be the safest car. If you think about safety, we need to be the first brand you think about. Still today, they have that first mover advantage. If you ask Americans, what's the safest car? They'll tell you it's a Volvo. If you read the ratings on crash test, that's not true anymore. But they've been able to build an iconic and distinctive brand and a unique value proposition to consumers through safety. My hope is that somebody will do the same for privacy because consumers want it. And, you know, especially for our audience, Evan, how cool would it be to say, you want somebody that needs to show up with a court order, otherwise we tell them to go and pound send, we're not going to send them a bit of your data. I mean, are you telling me you don't have anybody in, the, or in your circle that wouldn't say, that's the one car I want to buy? I would definitely give that car a first look if I was shopping. Everything you're saying might be an endorsement for Apple to finally come out with the Apple car. Maybe maybe <laughs> Apple would be the first one to do it. <laughs> I don't know that's what I was doing, but sure. <laughs> okay, we're running out of time. So this is the last question for you both. Um, do you have any advice for people looking to start a career in car privacy or in privacy in general? I mean, if we wanted to have a whole separate podcast on that, I think that's a wonderful topic. Yeah. <laughs> but in the couple of moments that I have, um, I think the, the first thing about privacy and a career in this space is understanding that privacy looks, a, looks like a lot of different things. It looks like a lot of different roles and a lot of different positions, not only at companies and, you know, people hear tech and they automatically think, um, you know, Google or Microsoft or Apple, um, but also thinking about uh, the advocacy organizations, the think tanks, the, um, the different, uh, you know, companies that are outside of tech, but have kind of a privacy or a data office within their um, companies. And and those are the different kinds of things to think about and, and understand when, when you're looking for a career in privacy. As it relates to car privacy, again, I think, um, you know, I didn't always find myself uh, talking about vehicle privacy specifically, um, but here I am. And it was an opportunity to start looking into an area that uh, is getting a, a renewed amount of attention. Um, um, and also close to home. I drive a car. I'm from Michigan. I grew up always, you know, commuting from one place to another in, in a vehicle. Um, and so recognizing that car privacy is something that touches everyone uh, and finding an interest in it. I think both Andrea and I have kind of highlighted two different ways to do that. And then on the other side, you could go to an OEM and work at a manufacturer side in the privacy team. Um, there's a number of ways to be in this space. And I think it's about kind of broadening horizons and understanding that it doesn't always look um, one particular way. Uh, it doesn't always require a law degree either. There's always space uh, in, uh, in, you know, on Capitol Hill to work in offices that are focused on these issues. Um, and so going the legislative and policy route is always an option as well. Um, all I can add, first of all, I, don't, I, I, I'm, I love what you just said. I think, you know, plus one on mm -hmm. everything. 
thank you for saying that this is not just for lawyers. I fundamentally believe that there's a lot of need for talents that go beyond okay. beyond the law. But automotive is the largest industrial sector on the planet. I mean, just in the United States, it's you know one and a half trillion dollars in sales every year with a T. There's a, a trillion dollar of assets on the balance sheet of all sorts of banks that have financed those vehicles that you see on the road. There are tens of thousands of dealerships. There are repair shops. I mean, everywhere you look, as you drive around, you will see cars and you will see businesses that cater to cars. And all of those have not only needs, but opportunities to make privacy part of their daily operations. And as I said before, I hope that many companies will figure out how to make privacy a value proposition. Why should I choose company A versus company B? And not again, not necessarily just manufacturing. Why should I finance with company A versus company B? Well, maybe company A has a process for, you know, we work with hundreds of those companies where um, whenever the, the car ends up back in their hands, they'll make sure that your data is gone so that the next person doesn't get to know that, you know, who you were, where you lived, your garage door codes and whatever else. And, and I think that there are many, 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 many opportunities out there. Um, and uh, if you're interested in what we do at Privacy for Cars, just go to the contact us page and let us know what you think. Thank you both for joining me today. Thank you, Evan. I appreciate it. Evan, thank you for everything that you do and stop us. And thank you for having me today. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Tech Policy Grind. If you enjoyed the show, get in touch with us at Foundry Podcasts with an S at ilpfoundry.us or leave us a review wherever you're tuning in. I'm Rima Musa, the host of the show, and this podcast wouldn't be possible without the help of our team at the Internet Law and Policy Foundry. Thank you to Evan Enzer for editing this episode, Lama Muhammad, our social coordinator, Alison McReynolds, our accessibility coordinator, and Tim Lorden at the Internet Education Foundation. See you next time.